Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, Making Education Work Across the Globe, where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap with me, Emma Turner, and Tom Sherrington. Today, we're going to be reflecting on our wonderful interview with Mary Myatt. Uh, So much wonderful insight and um, expertise from Mary in our interview with her. Tom's going to talk you through some of the research and reading around his new course, Teaching for Distinction. And then we're going to be getting to grips with some of the hot topics of the moment, including examinations, public examinations in the UK, um, quality assurance systems during COVID, and then examining what it's like for head teachers and senior leaders in schools in the UK at the moment. So it's been a few days, Tom, since we interviewed Mary. What have you been thinking about? Well, I, I've been thinking that um, I enjoy it when you tweet about it and you, you say something like, I predict a Myatt, which I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Kaiser Chiefs and uh, it, that, that's a joke that always goes down with me. So uh, that, that's one of the things I've been thinking. But also, uh, I just think it's, I think it's great that in our world we have people that command enormous respect and uh, they sort of embody everything that's sort of grown up and kind of intelligent about the teaching profession and uh, that's that's mary because she she has this a way of dealing with difficult issues but in a way which uh, embraces diverse opinion but without becoming polemical or biased in one way even though she's got very strong views she recognizes the need for debate and explore exploration and i don't think every i, I think she's brilliant for that she's, she's totally inspiring for me in that regard that she's just she knows a lot She's got a strong opinions, but at the same time, she's not sort of thr- ramming it down your throat in this way, which puts you off. And, and, and then she just is a standard setter. That's the other I love about her. She just, she wants things to be excellent. And she really is kind of demanding of us as, a, as, as people. And I think that's just, that's just wonderful. So I love hearing her talk. I, I just really like the way as well that you can tell us for so much depth to what she's thinking and what she's researched and what she's found out but then she just manages to convey in such a succinct way with such absolute clarity and razor sharp, sharp precision that you kind of think, why didn't I think of it like that? And it's like, because I'm not Mary Myers. That's why I don't think of things like that. But she just manages to make the complex and the difficult and the potentially overwhelming seem really doable, really clear, really small steps, really... Yeah. And I think that's such a talent of Mary's that she she helps and guides people's thinking with such clarity and direction that I, I can't recommend her highly enough either to see, to speak, you know, hear her speak, or to to read. She's the same on the page as she is in in real. Yeah, it's such great. a so huge she's talent. A, she's got this sort of cool kind of character, character, but she's and but also like her books. I mean, back on track, which she's she's um, published. She didn't even sort of. We didn't even spend that, that long talking about it, really. But it's, uh, it's, it's just like her, her one before. Um, she's written so many, but the, the last two, which have had the sort of element of curriculum and so on in there, um, she, it, the, the chapters are dead short. So you, uh, for me, that's just a blessing. You just go, like, there's no frills. It's like, bosh, and then this, and then this, and this, and it's the clarity. 
but also a succinctness and you know i think that's great but the main thing is it's her message that i've kind of you know i guess less is more you know just strip it back do a few things well and i do think people need encouragement from someone that you respect and has sort of seen a lot of practice to say yeah you know what it is okay to do this it's not some weird risk i always come away from mary feeling so much more confident in my own decision making and that is a huge gift that that very few people have is to make other practitioners and other um, educators feel as though they are doing the right thing so she instills huge confidence as well as an enormous amount of information as well so She's a gift, that woman. <laughs> and apparently Googled the Kaiser Chiefs after I first put I predict a riot. And she, goes, she wasn't aware who they were, but she was like, oh, I've been onto YouTube and had a watch of them. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, one, one thing I'll say is that she's um, in a part of a, a group that I'm in that we do, do these curriculum masterclasses and, and that she, she'll be doing one of, of her own in... December um so there's an event on the 1st and 2nd of December which people can sign up for and she's she's doing a talk uh, as part of that so people you know look look on look on online for those sorts of things if you want to hear Mary speak uh, and she obviously takes part in lots of other of, of other training yeah so that was really great um shall I talk about these uh, this the next thing then so, you're teaching for distinction yeah yes. I, I, I wanted to share this because here i am here i am in this sort of space here with my books behind me and sitting here doing this uh, on monday and tuesday this week i was i did a course for a, a college in uh, in oldham oldham college and they it's a, i've been working with them for a few years now and we've been really working hard about how to train teachers there's about 200 tutors there it's a big place wow. and what what we've what we've found is that you know, it's, it's, it, we've learned a lot about how do you get ideas from research into front of people so they're engaging with the reading. And the principal there, a guy called Alan Francis, who I just think is inspirational, running this enormous organisation. He phoned me about three years ago and he said, I want my teachers and my leaders to be really up to date on, on ideas and, and really informed. He wants them to be knowledgeable about teaching and about leadership. And from within not just always having sort of visiting speakers and stuff so we developed this program and i just thought i, I was really as i was delivering this sort of sessions with them I, I was thinking it's so interesting when we've encountered these ideas we, we've been using the same books for three years and the ideas are really deepening and linking together in a way which i thought was really interesting and i'm just going to tell you what they were so um one of the key books is, is dan willingham's why don't students like school and it's particularly the, the thing in there which is memory as a residue of thought. And what, as we were discussing this, this idea that thinking, it, it, it's, such, it's so simple, but he says in there, plan your lessons uh, so that students are th thinking about what they'll think about exactly. And that, that feeds into so many aspects to do with questioning and whether everyone is able to think tasks and whether they have to think to do the task or they can just do it without thinking thinking about the thing you want them to learn rather than thinking about something that's kind of to do with the nature of the task not the content it's so powerful so that that's one and it's just that simple idea that we came back to that over and over again there's a great book here by david didow and nick rose called what every teacher needs to know about psychology and in here they it's just so useful and we found this useful as a, as a like a textbook for teachers At the back of each chapter it says what every teacher needs to know about x and they the, the sections that we were looking at particularly were about working memory and cognitive load and it was sort of 
you don't need to know that much about those things but it the, the uh, linking that to the willingham it, we were thinking this is really really going well it's just sort of all chiming together and then finally uh, Dylan Williams formative assessment where he talks about the dynamics more the dynamics of a classroom yeah. and of course it links to other things like um Rosenshine's principles and other things which we were looking at but it was it and we, we just were feeling that in every context in a college where you've got people doing bricklaying maths business studies digital design child care it's just so many things these ideas really really apply it in lots of different ways and I, I just was thinking it's so it's so great to have these resources but you have to really pull out key concepts really cement them together and make them connect and the last thing growth mindset so we're saying there's a lot of fluff about growth mindset but when you when you break it into making students feel better about the fact that they can learn things because they are learning things because they're thinking because they're making connections all these other people are kind of the way to how to develop a growth mindset. So we are saying, so a growth mindset is almost like an outcome. It's like, it's what you get when, when the learning's working and it's a, a good idea, but it's, you can't just sort of talk about growth mindset. You've got to talk about these other things and then the growth mindset. So we were thinking this is all, I don't know. I feel like these ideas coalesce so nicely and are to a frame for how to teach well. So I just want to celebrate that, you know, these books are really helping and but we needed to get to we needed to get people to really read them so we were giving people chapter references pages and and making them read them because they asked we can talk about this later but there's the, the leaders in that college they have to do an assignment where they have to show they've read those books by writing up a literature review and i think that's great and is this a course that anybody can access tom no, it, not at the moment. It's a course we have developed for them. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's their course that we are running. We call it Teaching for Distinction because in, in a college, the grading system in a lot of the qualifications is pass merit distinction. Yeah. And too many students just pass and don't get distinction. So we're trying to say, like, how do we get... But also it feels like, you know, teaching with distinction, for distinction is like the person. Yeah. But it, it's, it's something... Well, the, what I found was great was the, the teacher's response... Go, moving from here's some reading you might do if you've got time to this year we've made it no you really have to do the reading and there's an assignment actually they they felt like you know what good good i'm i'm up for this i'm 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 being invested in here i'm not being patronized i'm being expected to engage as a professional and of course there's a workload element but actually we've made it fairly light touch in that sense by being really sharp just read this just read that not just chucking a whole load of whole fat books, people, but really sampling the key pages. And so and I just feel like... And it isn't a workload element if ultimately you sharpen your practice and then mm. you will become more efficient at what you do and you don't have to spend as much time thinking of new and novel ways of your own to solve a problem because actually you've now got the knowledge or the skill or the understanding or the, you know, the science that underpins it to really sharpen up your own practice as well. So it may be an initial investment, but actually pays dividends in the long run. I think so. And I tell you what, it was also my first experience for a, of, of full on whole class teaching online. So I had a class of, you know, window of people and I did it lots of times with different groups. Yeah. And, I, and I had like 15 or 18 people on the screen and I was saying, so, you know, so Dave, you know, what do you think about Carol Dweck? <laughs> and it's like, Dave's having to go like, 
oh my god i'm supposed to really know it and they and then once they realized i would definitely ask them they were really like switched on on camera and all those things people have talked about that in, welcome uh, to my world Tom. welcome to my world i do <laughs> online teach well, I haven't had to do it, you see. I mean, I, I have to admit that I've never, I haven't had to do it myself. So it was really quite an interesting experience to have to do it. Even with adults, they have the same behaviours, like um, having to switch on and be, be present in, on screen. is really yeah. takes some effort. Oh, fantastic. So teaching with distinction, I've got a feeling that's going to come out as a new course, I reckon, Tom. I can see that one in the pipeline. <laughs> Maybe we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. Right. In terms of the wider world, then, in terms of being in school, we were, we were going to talk about exams and about it's it's a massive issue um, I mean for people who are tuning in from the US I mean one of the amazing things about the the English system is that um, we have these qualifications which all the students have to take uh, when they're 16 and a whole bunch more at 18 they have to take exams when they're 11 uh, which in primary schools and they even have to do some baseline tests lower down. So there's a lot of testing goes on. And there's a Aren't we the most rate. tested country in, the, in Europe or something? Probably. And that, I'm, so the I'm is, sure we're the most tested and the least happy. <laughs> well, no, honestly, there's, I don't know whether that's correlation causation thing, but we're, we are one of the most tested education systems in terms of the number of exams children have to sit, yet consistently come out as one of the most unhappy. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I actually, this is slightly going off the topic already, but I'm actually very sceptical about happiness studies. I really am. I actually think you might actually be happier than other people. It's just the way you describe your happiness might be registered lower. So we might, our mindset might be that we tend to think of ourselves as we ought to be happier than we are, but maybe we're actually happier than other people. It's just that they think they're happy enough. So they, it's, the whole scoring system is so flawed that I, I just I don't think- if you flip that it's kind of i think the measure of unhappiness as in the measure of anxiety depression all of those things is high and that in itself says that people are not happy do you see what i mean rather than saying oh, i am happy i'm i you know i feel i feel happy you can have yeah. a measure of happiness by actually how many people are unhappy possibly but I, let's separate that from the exams because <laughs> i i, I, I absolutely <laughs> I, I, I personally don't feel that the, the, the whole thing, I think there's a lot said which is not proven and, and people are projecting onto it. But the reason I'm just, it's debated hotly. So what's happened recently, obviously, there are two things going on at once, which I think is interesting but complicated. One is all the public exams are cancelled in the summer because of COVID. And so the schools had to submit grades when the teachers set them, which is what other countries do anyway. But we, well, that was new for us. And then the students were getting grades which were not nationally standardised. They were just what the teachers had decided to give them. And that's what we've done. And the question is, next year, uh, we're going into this again. And there's uncertainty now about where COVID's going. So there's been a big debate about whether the exam should go ahead. And the decision has been that they will. So now there's a sort of backlash about, is that fair? Because some, some parts of the country 
have got more lockdowns than others. And so the students then all have a uniform experience. I mean, you could argue they, they never have anyway. Um, but then, so that's one debate. And the other debate is just about the nature of exams generally. So even if there was no COVID, there'd be people talking about, should we have so many exams? What should be in the exams? Uh, should they be at 16 and not at 18? Uh, and, 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 and so on. So there's a massive debate. And, my, and what I'm finding is people are linking these two things together, like the long term, the fundamental question about exams with what should we do next year when we still have COVID? And I, and I actually think they're totally separate debates. I really do think they're not the same. Um, but I know what you know, what, what's your sense of it? Because obviously, you know, we're going to talk about primary and secondary difference here. What's your sense of it from someone who's not a secondary teacher looking into that world and thinking about it from your perspective? I'm not a secondary practitioner, as you know, but I do kind of look at it and think we have had the craziest academic year we have ever had, yet there were people saying the show must go on. And I just think if everything is gradually um, in state of flux and chaos backstage we can't in, expect a similar sort of performance front of house so some, <laughs> something's got to change you know and i don't think the the notional three weeks that's been added on this year is going to make up for the for the kind of the bumps that we've hit over the last few months I mean, it's, it's, it seems complete, a complete nonsense to me to say the children have had the most disrupted education of generations. Um, the way they're being taught is completely different. Their education continues to be disrupted either by bubbles closing, staff absences. The way in which you can interact with the children is, is different in the classroom from the way we've always taught. And yet there being no recognition, maybe something needs to change and needs to give a little. It well, that's just that's what I think doesn't the seem to feel. stack up. I think, see, I think that's what a lot of people are feeling. But I, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is that, so my, I've been to a few, few schools this term. And I mean, it could just be a, a, a small sample. But in each one of them, and I include, say, my, my wife's school where she's the deputy head and it's, they're doing the same. They're feeling like very much like because of all the uncertainty, the, the best thing you can do for the students is to keep them focused on something which is yeah. the same as everyone else has had. So if you're teaching a year 11 class biology now, you want to be saying, look, guys, we're just going to carry on. We're going to teach you the stuff, the exams, when it is, and you need to keep working towards that. And if we have to go off for a couple of weeks, here's the resources and here's how you carry on studying. And there'll be some lessons online. Yeah. But we're not talking about when we close um, like it's time off we're talking about when we close we're actually carrying on and it's the need for the focus and the normality of that which i yeah. think people are actually saying is helping them not the other I way get, around i get that it's the what happens at the pinch point actually when it comes to that point where they're meant to be doing the exam and they're meant to be um stacking up their performance and experience against previous cohorts who have had a completely different experience and yeah. different delivery that's the point when it becomes a nonsense. I totally agree that keep kind of business as usual as much as possible because we haven't got a plan B at the moment. There isn't something different to work towards. Um, so keep working towards that. But as a system, as, as the kind of the decision makers in the system, 
there needs to be a recognition that those children can't be assessed against the same things that other cohorts have because they haven't had the same experience. I mean, I know this is kind of anecdotal, but when I was doing my A-levels, I had six months off because I had a botched operation. Now, I still did bits and bobs at home and in the hospital school and whatever. I know my grades weren't as good as they were meant to be because I had a disrupted six months of being in hospital. And it, I mean, and obviously these children are not necessarily in hospital, but that's the same thing that's happening now, but on a massive scale. They're not having the same as previous cohorts would have done. And I don't... Not, so, you, so you have to have, you have to have, there's a lot of things at play here. So there's the kind of, there's the need for the, there's the exam as a sort of focus point for assessing your achievement yeah. in itself. But then the grade you get for that, is it comparable with other people even, never mind previous years, that's a whole other thing, mm. but just within the year. And I think yeah. that's where people are, are most concerned. I think we can deal with the fact that uh, compared with previous years, we don't do performance tables. We just sort of say yeah. within that cohort. But the, I think the biggest concern is if you get an A or a B, or a, let's use the proper, that's for A level, but a GCSE, say a grade seven in maths, it should be the same standard as the grade seven in maths for someone else or in English. And a, an exam is the fairest way to do that because everyone takes the same exam under the same conditions. But what you can't do is, is level out everyone's experience. We can't yeah. just say compensate for that issue, compensate for that issue. You've got to kind of assume that by now schools have kind of got their act together with year 11, especially for keeping them going through, even if they have to shut down a little bit. I feel like that's the most fair assumption that schools, yeah. schools are actually teaching kids when they're at home and they're not actually stopping. I think that's right, but I think the divide between those children who have access to technology and resources at home and those children who, you know, those that do and those that don't, is going to impact so much more than in previous years because you ha you've got huge numbers of children who haven't got access to, to laptops, to a device, to Wi-Fi, to, you know, a supportive adult at home or a safe and you know, not chaotic working yeah. environment. You, which... That's what Peter DeWitt was talking to us about, even from the US context. Like that's a yeah. Nice but maybe, maybe, and I, I still, so what I'm hoping for is that um, uh, Glennis Stacey, who's the head of, uh, the sort of interim head of Ofqual, which governs all these bodies, I think she has made noises to say that the nature of the exams, there's still time. Having said they're definitely going ahead, which I think is good, mm -hmm. they are still saying there's still time to maybe look at, maybe there are more options, maybe students get more choice in the exam, and maybe there will be, some flexibility there so i think there will be some more changes to come through yeah. uh, but what, we, what we can't have as well is the debacle of that algorithm again no I don't, well i don't i think literally oh. <laughs> universal but what you know from my <laughs> point of view though, what, what i feel like it was like see even your sense that these things are problems which is real it's just true and mm -hmm. everyone is, is like the so what the it's the alternatives the alternatives are like more to, you know people are saying well trust teachers now i have a big issue with this i think it's a i think teachers should be really careful about saying um it's about trusting teachers to assess the students because in, in in the us where you have sort of grade point average uh, assessments and in sweden where they do something similar there are debates about wh whether or not the standards are the same 
And it's not about trust, it's about systems. You know, if you don't have a system for checking that your standards are the same as mine, we don't know. We, I trust you and you trust me, but we can't tell. So the, the way that you tell is by something in a very complicated moderation system, and that takes up a lot of time and effort. And it's a big workload issue. So I don't think trusting teachers is a healthy way to frame a technical process about knowing what the standards are. And I worry whenever, whenever everyone says that, we should just trust the teachers. I think, no, don't. It's not about trust, because we should be trusted anyway. To, <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's, it's also a big responsibility for a teacher. It's a huge responsibility. So if you are going to assign that grade to that child um, to think, actually, this is my decision, which could affect you know, their future chances or whatever, you know, whatever what group they go into or what set they go into, it's a massive responsibility for an individual. Yeah. Like you say, it would need to be moderated, not just for accuracy, but also to take out that kind of individual responsibility or bias and yeah. something as well. It was funny, actually, when, back in March last year, no, this year, when they first announced that the, great, the exams would be gone and teachers would be setting grades, a friend of ours who's a teacher, she, she just dropped past the house she, you know we we're socially distancing she was standing at the end of our little gate there and have to explain it Tom I believe <laughs> <laughs> it was funny she, she said one of her students had just heard the news who was uh, and, and, and her student had been quite a naughty student all year had come up to her and said miss look I know I've been really really terrible um but I really was going to work really hard for these exams so will you <laughs> will you take that into account like she's really trying to butter her up because she felt, oh gosh, and that you know that type of thing. Anyway, I think I think it's interesting, and I, I my my main message I say to anyone in listening to this would be don't you know think about the technicalities of it as much as the emotional side of it because you do need to have systems which we trust, and it's the systems we have to trust, not the individual people. I think that's a mistake. Mm. But I, I I think actually because we've spent a bit of time on this, I mean another whole discussion I think we should have, and I think we should do this in the next time we do this, is talk about primary assessment because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of people cross phase, if I'm honest, who don't necessarily fully appreciate the opposite, uh, you know, the, the, the yeah. other. So for me, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to to report back on this the next time we do this. Okay. What, I, what I, the, I could talk for days, days about primary assessment. I don't, I don't get the whole debate uh, really about the phonic, you know, phonics checks and baseline assessments and why it's so controversial. You hear people arguing about it all the time. And I, for me, as a sort of examsy kind of person, I don't, I, I don't understand why it's controversial. I just think, yeah, test, test them and see what they can do. But I, I suspect there's a bit more to it than that. Yeah, dig yourself a bunker for next time. <laughs> Yeah. I'm coming so, for you. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about that next time, okay? Because I, I think there's a, that's an interesting area to it. Yeah, I, I, do, I do think primary assessment is, is grossly misunderstood a lot of the time. Um, and it's a huge area. It's really, it can be really contentious. There's elements of great practice going on. And so, yeah, I do think that unpicking primary assessment is a really good conversation for the next And the other, the other question I'm going to ask you next time is, why do we have, if we scrap SATs, who, who suffers? And um, that's an important question. Which leads us on to our next topic, quality assurance. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, 
this is interesting. So, um, there's a few things here. There's also like how schools do it well. Yeah. But also now in, in COVID era where people have got a lot on their plate, should school leaders be doing walkthroughs in lessons? Should they be observing lessons? Should they be holding teachers to account for the quality of their lessons? Should they I be? Don't, I, I, I don't I, think. What do you think? I don't think it's yes or no. Um, because there are elements of QA that need to happen. For example, NQTs, they need to be supported. They need to be observed. They need to have that development their practice and they need to, for want of a better word, pass that NQT year. There are elements of QA that have to happen in order for you know, people to develop and people to move on. Um, I also think that things like a mockstead at the moment is utter madness. What is that? Explain that for people who don't know what that is. Well, Ofsted obviously is our statutory um, inspectorate who come in and judge the quality of uh, provision in school. And a mockstead is a lovely term for people who do a, not fake Ofsted, but a, a dummy run type Ofsted and go in and go through the process in order to notionally build confidence and to unpick any areas for development prior to the actual inspection however um, peer review done really well really well supported with trusted colleagues can be really useful however at the moment in the current climate i think that doing a mockstead or any kind of huge additional inspection when people are juggling so many balls and working in and basically firefighting a lot of the time you know, have we got enough staff to even to even teach today to provide the, the education to then say, right, we're going to come in and do a mockstead or a, a huge QA or a huge monitoring evaluation thing. I, I don't know why you would do that to your staff. I really, I just don't know why you would do it. I understand that everything needs to develop and to move on. And obviously there needs to be coaching and mentoring available because people's professional development doesn't stand still. But to actually say we're going to come in and we're going to do like a, um, a department-wide mockstead or a school-wide mockstead, oh, whilst you're remote teaching, whilst you're dealing with um, all these COVID-secure procedures, whilst you don't know how many kids you're having in there and you've got staggered starts and this, that and the other. I know, it's not, isn't it? It's funny because it's interesting to me that you, you, you refer to mockstead a, mock, a lot, you know, several times there, but it's it's never a phrase that I hear I hear or use, and it's because I'm sort of like I have sort of like <laughs> fairly bad so you know uh, sort of links with the informal in inspection process in Austin, and so I never I never talk about it, never use it, I never refer to the framework in any of my work, never. Yeah. And so I kind of it's sort of, but I have still been invited into a couple of places to go and help them with some stuff like looking at lessons and stuff. So why is that all right? Now what's happened there is. Where, where I've been in so far, it's been sort of, it's so uninspectorial. So what I do is I'm writing something up, which is just to help them and no one sees it but them. And they, even, even like, so for example, a couple of weeks ago, I was up, I schooled up in Durham and I walked around the science department with the head of science. And it, it, it was great for, he was, he, he was being made in a way to, to do the thing he loves doing, which is to see his teachers in action and think about their practice. But because I was there, it was like we had, he could then talk about it and then he was yeah. then talking to his team. 
and it was like a a, a, a nice collaborative sort of feel to it but it would it would be wrong to pretend that wasn't a quality assurance process because he was yeah. he was the, he was i was sort of looking at he what he was saying he was looking at what his teachers were doing we were feeding back to the head we were discussing so there is a qa element but it was done in a spirit which is genuinely trying to help things improve and i, yeah. I, I don't know if that's i don't think, and i was quite encouraged they're still doing it now in covid time I mean, there is a there is the element of you need to know your school you need to know what's going on in your school you need to have a flavor for what's working well what's not going particularly well and that still needs to carry on and also people still have that entitlement to have their professional skills and knowledge developed there still needs to be that investment in staff we can't just run people into the ground at the skill level that they're at in the moment and pretend that they don't need to grow as a professional just because of what we're doing in a pandemic but I think we need to be incredibly aware of the type of QA activities we'd be doing the impact that they would be having on the staff and also the purpose of it you know why are you actually doing this is it to, is it because you know you you feel ill prepared for an inspection that's potentially looming is it because you genuinely want to develop your staff for teaching and learning and just being really clear about, you know, the biggest resource you have in your school are your staff and your teachers and putting onerous additional QA, um, I would say experiences, but kind of activities on the top of what they're already doing. If that's not actually going to benefit them and move their practice forward and help them make their job easier and, and more efficient and effective, then I, I don't know why anybody would do them at the moment. No, I agree. And especially if it can add extra workload. So one, one of the things I think is works well is that you use existing structures to do it. So what, one, what, let's say if you look at, say, book scrutiny, like um, even with, in non-COVID sort of constrained times, that, that, that has been, in some places, been turned into an absolute nightmare of mm -hmm. heavy-handedness. So handing your books, then there's a whole pile of books on the tables and people are looking at them even like filling in sheets, hand, you know, typing out reports to the teacher about the standard of their books. Then the teacher has to have some time to look at that. And then it's, oh my God. And this whole thing of them getting ready for their books to be looked at is stressful. Mm -hmm. Whereas what can work really well, totally different from that is the regular time, which is the meeting time where we were going to meet anyway, we bring our books, we open them up together as a team and we look at each other's work and we say, what's working, what are the students, and this is like a discussion we're having together yeah. while we're there about the things that our students, our kids are doing, and it's a collaborative sharing of practice in the time we would be using anyway, no extra workload, and it's not being done, it's not being sort of top yeah. down, it's like a professional discussion, and I, and I think those are the things which work better anyway, so why not just keep it to that type of approach rather than anything which feels remotely inspectorial. I know somebody who wrote about checking in, not checking up, Tom. <laughs> I believe that's you. It's a great phrase. <laughs> checking in, not checking up. Yeah, uh, and that's Emma the... Turner. Emma Turner. <laughs> she said it in the tod in the in the toddler book. Oh, I think you've you've done a whole thing a bit on this show with, about that before. I think, but yeah. it's but it's the yeah. culture, isn't it? It is, and I, I think it's even more so now that people need to be checked in with more than checked upon. 
because people are grappling with so many different aspects of their practice now. They're having to adapt, be so agile. They're having to move a lot of their practice from physical, in the room, present work to online or blended learning. And it's, they are learning an incredible amount. And so then put historical QA systems over what is a state of professional flux doesn't do anybody any favours at the moment, I think. I think- I, I think one of the things that's sort of easy to say and hard to do when you're under pressure is to say something like, you shouldn't be Ofsted-driven, you shouldn't be preparing for inspections, you should just be running a good school and Ofsted will come. And I just think, if you've ever been bat- battered by Ofsted, that's, that's a high-risk strategy because you think, yeah, I don't like being battered by people who come and visit. So you know what? I believe what you're saying in, in principle, but because of the system is the way it is, I kind of feel like, yikes, I still want to get ready. Mm. And that's a horrible culture. But in a way, as a school, you can't change the system. Um, when you're in a more positive situation, you shouldn't be making things more stressful than they are um, uh, on other people's behalf. Something else I was going to uh, raise about this is just sort of, um, it, it is the spirit. With people, one of the things I think is the acid test of a QA kind of culture in a school is, do people like being observed or not? Mm. And, and if people actually are really happy to be observed. In fact, they, they, they seek it out and they, they like the feedback conversations. That shows you their spirit is good. But if observation is like, observation, <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. It, it, you know the culture's wrong. You know, it's like, it, it shouldn't feel like that, that way. No, one of the things that breaks my heart is when you go into a school and people are going, good luck with your observation, good luck. <laughs> Look, <laughs> why, yeah. why do you need good luck? What's going to happen if it doesn't go to plan? Oh my goodness! <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, but, yeah. But I, what, I, what I think just so there's so there's so many issues here which are the same. A bit like with the exams, there's those of which are the same regardless of the COVID. The one thing I'm encouraged by, and I am encouraged by it, is is schools' sort of groundedness. They're just getting on with things. And what I've seen, what I've seen, definitely true. Even evidence in the fact that people are sort of buying. CPD materials that I'm I'm producing stuff more than before is because people want to get on with it. They they don't want to be feeling like their entire life is defined by you know masks yeah. and two meter yeah. exclusion zones. They want to be getting on with the the real thing. And I actually think that, that kind of business as usual psychology yeah. is is impressive when people are managing to deliver that. And lots of people are. And te- and it's because they're teachers, Tom, and they are. Teachers are always trying to improve their practice. And it doesn't matter what situation you put a teacher into. They'll always find something to reflect on, something to evaluate, something to move the practice forward. It's no, you know, and it's no different. And I think the fact that we've had to be so agile and so nimble in changing the way that we work, it's actually thrown up loads more opportunities for people to network, to read, to work in a different way and to try things out. And I think a lot of people have seen the potential for change as well and kind of embraced a lot of that and it's it's heartening to see that the people that are leading learning in our school are still continuing to drive their own professional learning even during yeah. this even during the pandemic so yeah. I'm blown away by it. there's some good programs being developed as well so let's let, let's i mean let's look on this so within all of this i mean we we, we um talk about cpd and stuff a lot but it's i think it's sort of it's always linked to the qa there but what about head teachers i mean you know a lot of head teachers so do i um <laughs> i believe you've had if we, we are prompted to talk about the, the pressure under we we've had we've had a letter haven't we tell, tell people yeah. about that 
Yeah, I'm glad I left it from a very experienced head teacher, very well respected head teacher, um, exceptional practitioner. And I asked them, what's it like at the minute for heads? So if you were going to describe it, and they wrote me a letter, and it's quite long, so I'm going to you know, sit back, relax, I'm going to read you, this, read you this letter, it's fairly long, because I think it just flags up quite a lot of points. And don't get me wrong, this person is the most devoted professional you will ever meet. They are very positive about the profession as a whole. They enjoy their job. They're not, this is not a complaint letter. This is meant to be a painting, a picture of, of current reality for, for a lot of head teachers. So I really tap. Many heads have not stopped since March. They've worked relentlessly for seven months non-stop through Easter, May half term and much of the summer without a break. Many secondary heads had to navigate the fiasco presented by A-level results day in August and the subsequent examination U-turn regarding GCSE grades. Then there was the poor handling of BTECs. All heads were then presented with a late night DFE announcement on bank holiday before returning to school in anticipation of the new academic year. Some schools were already back, for example, in Leicestershire, with next to no notice to implement key changes to the DFE guidance that was presented to them at the last minute. Heads have now spent six to eight weeks running schools under a COVID cloud, which has placed an intolerable weight of pressure, stress and strain on many. Parental complaints have surged in a way never seen before due to the stress of COVID. Heads are now navigating keeping their schools open, mitigating the risks posed by COVID, responding to daily COVID concerns, having to devise remote learning plans, create catch-up fund plans and maintaining a smiley face to ensure staff morale doesn't plummet. In the background is the possibility of an Ofsted friendly visit, which adds another weight of pressure and strain to any senior leader, coupled with having to deal with daily issues such as, will we have any staff to deliver the curriculum today? What's being done to actually support heads? How is the welfare and wellbeing of head teachers being monitored and supported? What actual slack are heads being cut? Add to this the Eden Red Free School Meals Voucher Scheme and the laptops for the disadvantaged that didn't appear until the last minute. Plus a need now to ensure all pupils have connectivity and a device if remote learning is actually to succeed. Plus we still don't really know anything about accountability for pupil attendance, staff attendance and results. And I've also not added in behaviour. Many schools have been faced with pupil behaviour that's worse than ever before, real defiance. So now you need a new behaviour annex and a safeguarding annex to your policies that are COVID focused. I'd actually say a critical storm is brewing. It's, it's like it's just extraordinary isn't it yeah i mean and there's we rely on the fact that i mean I, I, one, one of the things my my observation has been that in the face of got sort of chaotic government announcements and policy making what head teachers are delivering by and large is just awesome <laughs> just yeah. what they've managed to do and of course i mean i was in a school last week where they told me how Back in March, April, they started off doing this with the online learning. Then by May, it was this. Then it was June. They've learned so many things along the way. And so now, you know, they say by the end, we, re- we worked out kind of what was working and what wasn't. So there's a learning curve, which is massive. And now they're kind of like on it. And they realized, and I, and I just think that's exactly what you do. You just get on with it. It's the same with all the, the you know, these classrooms with tape at the front and zoning and different schools with incredibly sophisticated bubble systems and i think it's amazing i mean we could sit here just sort of saying how amazing heads are for for which yeah. <laughs> but i don't 
I don't think until you actually see those things listed like that, one after the other, almost like a chronology of chaos, that you actually realise what they've achieved either. Yeah. Every little thing, every, well, they're not little, but every item on there has been either a huge Twitter storm where, you know, heads have been amazing supporting each other, sharing documents, um, ideas, you know, all sorts of things. But the cumulative effect of every single one of those and the potential it has to erode someone's physical, mental, emotional resources, their confidence in their ability to do a job, that is huge because that is happening to tens of thousands of individual head teachers across the country who are battling to keep the schools open, to keep staff morale high, with little to no guidance or support. I think it's, it's not just... It's not enough to go, oh, aren't they marvellous? They've just done really well. It needs to be kind of shouted from the rooftops that, oh, my God, look what they've actually achieved. There's been no head teacher with a platform large enough to actually say, if I list all of this and go through this, look what we've had to do, and still educate all the children, keep the staff safe. You haven't moved the exam goalposts. You know, we've had to – we're constantly in this state of reaction – when actually school leaders are the most organised, proactive and, and kind of strategic people you will ever meet, have to shelve that and be, a, and be reactive to, to all of that. It's immensely wrong-footing for, for school leaders. And what I do you think, I mean, I think, I mean, there's a recognition. I think what we need to be conscious of is kind of, in the accountability kind of culture, that that is... Yeah. That, so if I was a guy, I mean, to be honest, the schools that I've got the closest contact with, the governing bodies are doing what they're supposed to, as far as I can see, that they have, they have recognized that. And they, I think they have a duty to, like if I was a governor of a school, I think there's a duty to know, like for example, imagine if you're in a school where compared with like nearly everybody else, your online provision was really poor. I mean, that might be the case and you'd need to be able to kind of, ask questions which you're saying oh what are we doing and, I, and it could be that your covid response has been not very good either so when you're a governor you've got this dilemma of i do need to know that it's doing being done well i do need mm-hmm. to know that but at the same time i need to rely on this person yeah to do it they are the most, them we're stuffed they are the most vulnerable person in the school in terms yeah. of being because they are unless you're in a co-headship you are the only person doing that job. Everybody is either less senior than you and doesn't carry the can, or they are your kind of manager in terms of being like the chair of governors or the board or whatever. You are totally on your own. And, and Sue Bull, who runs a co- an amazing coach, who's a coaching course, um, talks about head teachers being um, vulnerable because they are lone workers. They are the only person in that organisation doing that job, which makes them immensely vulnerable because they are a lone worker. They've got nobody necessarily to sympathise, empathise, you know, sound, have a sounding board. Yeah. And I'm co-chair of governors at my children's school, and as a standing agenda item on the governor meeting is head teacher welfare, because it's you know we recognise that the the well-being of the head teacher managing their workload managing you know their well-being is fun absolutely fundamental to the effective effective running of a school and you know 
head teachers can't just be the fall guy for everything. They are ultimately human I think there's some organic stuff. One of my conclusions from being a head is that um, I've had several chairs of governors, um, some who I had a more strong personal relationship with than others, and um, a different situation, different levels of pressure and stress and success and, and failure. And my, my conclusion, sort of averaging out from all of that, is that as a head teacher, my biggest advice to anyone starting out was find somebody who you respect, who you can talk to openly and honestly, including all of your worst fears, mm-hmm. who isn't someone you're married to because you can't offload everything on them, and isn't your chair of governors. Because they, they at the end of the day, you're, while you're admitting your fears and failures to them, they have to judge that. They have to think, they can't really, they don't, almost don't want to hear that level of honesty. They need to feel confident in you. And mm. you, you, you can't just offload to them. It's de- dangerous. They, they'll end up sacking you using the information you've given them if they have to, because you've been too honest with them. And I think that's real. I mean, I know lots of people who've had that experience. If you've ever been sacked, you know that. <laughs> you know that you can't trust your chair of governors with your most deep fears because they they're not the right person to share that with. They can't, it's not fair on them almost to be told those things. They, you need a barrier, you need a buffer. And I, I did have a couple of people, but I didn't see them often enough. And also I think I was too in awe of them because I tried to copy them in, in a way which was impossible. It's almost like- you know, Bad tribute act. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I, I would say like, why can't I do what you do? It's, it's just not, it, it's, not it's, it's hard. But I do think this thing of like even somebody writing a letter and offloading, like that feeling of having someone you can tell, but you have to be wait, someone you can tell your worries of to with no consequences because they, and, and sometimes baggage, you know, I, I know what it's like when people offload. It's, it's, you have to receive that and be able to go, and that has to not affect you too much. One, um, of, the, one of the greatest strengths of the co-headship that I worked in was that we weren't lone workers. Yeah, amazing. And that we had that. We had that. You know, we could say at the door to whoever was there, yep, leave it with us, that's fine. Shut the door and go, oh, God, what are we going to do? But because (laughs) there was two of us, we were in it together. You were never alone, never alone. And had I been alone, head, I would have needed to do what you've said, which was to find the coach, the mentor, the counsellor, whoever it is, um, to share that with, because you cannot be that one person who bottles it all up and carries the can for everybody at the end of the day you're a very skilled professional incredibly knowledgeable massively skilled but you're also a person things hurt things make you tired things make you angry things make you upset you've got to find those people that you can share yeah. that with it's hard, isn't it? to be that genuine equal so well, like when you're i'd say it's one of the things i miss more than anything from being ahead is having a team i love that and i love <laughs> working with those people uh, and nurturing people in fact I'd say now I, I'm thinking of three people specifically now who are heads that I that used to be my deputy who I were way better at the job than I ever was and they were, you could tell that straight away like I was thinking I feel like you should be doing this job not me because you're way better at better at it than mm-hmm. I am and that, that's definitely true now you should see them they're, they're just all three of them that I'm thinking of are amazing Tom, just, there is an argument that leaders create new leaders so <laughs> <laughs> but I so I could champion them, but I felt 
always a bit of a barrier from saying, look, let me just unload my rubbish onto you. So I, I feel for all these head teachers. I see it in some of the, the stuff they're outpouring on Twitter and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's hard. At the same time, I think where people have got, a, you know, like one, one person I know, she's, she has an amazing team around her. They do create a kind of team spirit and that, that, that's great. But, the, but, but also she has a good group of governors who just give her, give her space to be herself and she, respect, she, she enjoys that. But I know other people where it's just like constant pressure, like get off my back. You know, the governors always, that's, they mention the governors every time I meet them. The, the most immediate source of pressure is from the governing body and i just think is that that is your yeah. fault those governors what do you want who do you want you know you want blood out of people Take so. a Gov governance is a critical friend but you can't just do the critical bit no and get the best out of people and an organization neither can you just do the friend bit and get the best out of a person or an organization our governors at my school when i was in headship Oh my goodness, they're the most supportive, wonderful group of intelligent, innovative, warm-hearted, kind people. And they were instrumental in restructuring the school, in the school forward. And Claire and I couldn't have made the progress that we made without some of the decisions that they made. And, and they were sometimes the people that we did confide in and, you know, say, you know, we're really worried about this. And, and they would help to support you through that process. Um, but there are other governors and governing bodies that I know that just take it as a, like they're a constant offset inspection. Yeah, I know. It's, it's weird, isn't it? I think sometimes yeah. it's the language. I love it when governors talk about us, like, what are we doing? How, what's our strategy? How's our, how are our finances? Because you feel like, you're, yeah, you're in, you're in, we're in this together and we put a, 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 a face forward. But I've also been in other situations where people are sort of saying, tell me about your and it's like well you 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 said you rather than like not not us like we're separate anyway yeah. well I, I think we'd all respect this i mean we if you're in a if you're in a responsibility position where you are responsible for a head teacher and supporting them like if you're a parent mm. balance out those messages ask questions but don't don't complain don't moan i you know one of the things i find kind of sickening actually is when people publicly criticize their child's school on Twitter, even when they're a teacher or working in the profession. I just think, yeah. why, why are you doing that? Why, why are you publicly criticizing your child's school online? Um, it's kind of, how dare you do that? You know, like if you've got an issue with them, then deal with it privately, but you know the impact that has on that school. We talked about this before. It's yeah. so wrong. And, and that head teacher who's receiving that knows about that. Of course they do. Especially if you've got lots of followers, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, so I can get quite annoyed about that. <laughs> But I do think now is a critical time for heads to reach out and to build yeah. work, supportive networks and things like engaging with coaching, for example, like through Women Ed with the coaching pledge where people yeah. can access free coaching. I think there's never been more of a time when, when school leaders need to connect with each other just to kind of... Solidarity. Solidarity but also for support. And there have been some hugely generous sharing of resources, of plans, of yeah. things that have been drawn up in schools. And I think that just goes to show that there's such a degree of altruism out there within head teachers. But unfortunately, there are some still head teachers that are being kind of cut adrift and sailing as a lone ship. And I think that they've got to connect with other heads and other... Yeah, definitely. Just, um, because... No one person is going to be able to weather this on their own. I just don't, I think it's too big. And if I you totally agree. 
from that letter, what head teachers have managed to achieve already is staggering, absolutely staggering. And by reading the news and everything, it's not stopping anytime soon. We're not getting to what we were before in the, you know, in the so very near future. If you're if you're in a school and you're you're teachers a session where you know they're meeting other head teachers, <laughs> just give them the space to do that. Like they need that, you know. That they're not go, they're not going there except because they need to be there, and I, because that that is important for everybody. So no, I think we should just say a huge thank you to everyone doing this job. It's amazing yeah. what, what people do, and um, I hope the person who wrote us to us feels the support that they you know comes their way. Okay, well, look, I think, we, I think that's time for us to finish there. We've had lots of discussions, so many things going on. It's the most incredible, crazy time in education, and it will continue to be. Thank you very much to everybody for listening to this episode, and uh, we'll, we hope you enjoy the, the other interviews, um, most recently, of course, with Mary Myatt, and before that with Mark McCourt and so many others before. So listening on the podcast, listen to all the previous episodes or watch you on YouTube. Thank you for joining us at Mind the Gap. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.